good morning everyone, finally. <laughs> so, to wait for a few parents to come back. So let's start with a little short review of last time, what we did. We talked last time that the New Testament and, and especially the Gospels are very difficult, if not impossible, to understand without the Old Testament. And so we gave a little bit of a background to the Old Testament, very, very brief, so we could talk about the Gospels. And the background, and the and the background to the to the old to the New Testament was the background of Israel. We talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the first nation that belonged to God, and then how they went down to Egypt, and how they came back from Egypt and to Mount Sinai and were given the law. And we said that this law is not like our law, a kind of a legal law that we have. If you step on my grass, I'm going to take you to court. It's not that kind of law. It means Torah. It's, the word is Torah, and it means to show the way. And it's supposed to show full, this full spiritual insight into God. And then the kings were established in Israel, especially King David. And then the temple was built by King Solomon. So all of that was upward, and then there came the, the fall. And the fall was the people didn't obey God. They rebelled again and again. God had to send all kinds of punishments, various signs, prophets. And finally, uh, they were exiled into Babylon. And in Babylon, there was a lot of thinking about what had happened. And so they returned to the Holy Land, they rebuilt the temple. At that time, it was a very simple rebuilding, just putting the stones together. And the priesthood was reestablished. And then they remembered the law. They said, you know, we were sent into exile because the prophets had warned us that we're not keeping the law of God. And so several people took that seriously and began to be righteous keepers of the law. And we went through examples of that, Mary and Joseph, Joachim and Anna, and many others that are mentioned in the New Testament, were righteous, righteous keepers of the law. But the other side of the sword was that people said, oh, well, we broke the law, so what do we do? We're going to build a fence around that law. And the fence is, so if you break the fence, you're not really breaking the law. So we're starting to get legalism. And that's very important for the Gospels and also for us today, to understand the Gospel, this, this trend towards legalism. So it's in this context that Christ was born. Are there any questions about last time? So the question here was, when they were in Babylon, what was worship like? And the Babylonians were pagans. And we get that from the book of Daniel where, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up idols and expects people to bow down. But those that were, uh, you know, wanted to keep the, the law of God, wanted to remember God, kept the, the Jewish traditions. But it's easy to get sucked in to kind of be half Jewish and half pagan, which is what often happened with these people. And so they might have had some private idols at home while they worshipped the true God, stuff like that. There was a mixture of things. And one of the things that they realized is they don't have a temple, and we'll talk about that, and so they founded something called a synagogue. And that's, that's part of the new innovation in, in Babylon. And so when Christ comes on the scene, 
the synagogue is already established as a, as a kind of a, a spiritual house. Because if you think about the temple, the temple is physical. It's about sacrificing animals, presenting yourself to the priests, all of that. Whereas now when they were in Babylon, they said, well, we don't have a temple, so we're going to establish a synagogue, which is more about reading the law and doing things. So Jesus was had to be born Jewish, according to the Old Testament, and in the city of David, and according to the law of God. So where's the city of David? Bethlehem. And what does Bethlehem mean? <laughs> Almost. Very close. House of bread. House of bread. <laughs> We're going to be legalistic in this class. So, yes, it does imply the house of bread, specifically bread because Christ was the bread of life. So it's kind of interesting. That name goes way back before Christ. So it's interesting that Christ was born in the house of bread. And he was expected because the prophets had said that the king of Israel, the great king of Israel, who was the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Why is that called the city of David? The city of David, because David was born there. And so Christ, the King David prefigures Christ in many ways. That's why he's also called the son of David. Okay, so something weird happened here. I got the microphone, but not the clip. Okay, so... So I kind of mentioned it last time briefly that uh, he had to be in the lineage of King David because number one, he had to be in the lineage of Abraham. Number two, he had to be specifically of the tribe of Judah because Judah was the tribe that was prophesied to have the kings of Israel. And then King David was one of the major kings, the first kings of Israel after King Saul. And so he had to be in that lineage. He not only had to be a Jewish person, he had to be a kingly person in the lineage of the kings. Even though the kings were gone by the time... Uh, by the time except Herod. Herod was half Jewish and I'll go into that, yeah. Yes, yes, good point. Yes, thank you. Okay, so if we go for example to Matthew 1 and verse 20, while Joseph thought about these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, you son of David. So Joseph wasn't the physical father of Jesus, but he was the legal father, and he was also in the lineage of David, King David. And then, of course, Mary was a daughter of David, as we saw from the descendants list. And behold, Luke 1, verse 31, you, referring to Mary, daughter of David, shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means um, salvation. So it's exactly the same name as Joshua. So there's several things that happen with a name, right? You can either translate it or you can transliterate it. So the name is Yoshua in, in Hebrew, which is easier in English to become Joshua. But if you go into Greek, you can't say Yoshua, so they say Yosus. Yosus because they like to have the S at the end. And so Jesus becomes Jesus in our language. But Jesus and Joshua is the same. That's why you have uh, 
you know, many Mexican friends called Jesus, 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 right? Many Mexican people. That's Joshua. All right. So, and I should say really Spanish people. So, for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So the city of David, the lineage of David, this was all very important. And the people were amazed. So when they saw him do miracles, they said, is this not the son of David? So everybody knew that the Messiah was supposed to be a son of David. And so when he did miracles, they said, isn't this the son of David? So there was puzzlement about him. He didn't just go out and tell people, you know, this is who I am. But some people started to understand. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed. So that's actually a Greek word. So we have a Hebrew word, Jesus, and a Greek word, Christ. So he both has a Hebrew and Greek. You know, it's not his last name. It just means anointed. Uh, chrism, exactly. Yes, good point. Now, the important thing to remember is after everything we studied, Jesus himself was a Jew, so he kept the law. And that means the whole, whatever the Old Testament said, right? So, for example, his parents kept the law. And the, uh, when the eight days were accomplished, Luke 2, verse 21, they circumcised the child and named, uh, his name was called Jesus, and he was named uh, of the angel. Now, why was he circumcised? Because Abraham had had a covenant with God. God said, if you circumcise all of your descendants, I will uh, you know, bless you and make you into a great nation. So that was part of the covenant. Covenant has terms. A covenant has conditions. And one of the conditions to being in the covenant of God that God imposed on Abraham was that he would circumcise. Now that, you know, I think today we would say that's a weird covenant uh, term, right? But it wasn't weird uh, in those days. Why? Why was it not weird in those days? Because certain parts of your body were important for children. And for them, sex wasn't the thing, children were the thing. The most important thing in those days was having children. Today, couples marry and say, oh, we're not going to have any children. That would be absolutely bizarre to that generation, to those people. Children was the most important things. And so you find in the Old Testament, people actually put their hand on people's thighs and swear by their thighs because that's their reproduce, re reproduction area. Because if they could reproduce, that was very important. And if a woman couldn't have a child, whether it was the man fault or her fault, she would be in great shame, right? To such an extent that in those days, some of them had uh, even, uh, uh, you know, if a woman couldn't have a child, she would give her handmaid to her husband. What was that? <laughs> so, uh, and that was actually, we find that even outside of the Bible, in Hittite records and others, that women that could not have children were very ashamed. And they, you know, and again, sex wasn't the thing, having children was the thing, very important. So, and, and, and so that, because that would be carry on your name and carry on your tradition of your family. Luke 4, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, 
This is Jesus, and he, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So when the Jews came back from Babylon, there was a temple, but you could only go to the temple so much. And, and maybe some of them were established in Galilee, which was about three days walking distance. And so they established synagogues which had been founded in Babylon. Synagogues were a bit like... Uh, you know, uh, sort of Sunday school, but they but they're a bit like our church, and many of our church traditions come from the synagogue, and some of our church traditions come from the temple. So both of those things come together in our church. But what the synagogue was, you did you did a few things in the synagogue. You read the law on Sabbath, and you read the prophets. And then the church early on had that as its part of its tradition. And when the Gospels were written and the Epistles were written many years later, then they substituted reading of the Law and reading of the Prophets by reading of the Gospel and reading of the Epistle, which is what we do today. But the early Christians read the Law. They would get up, read part of one of the five books of Moses, and then they would read something from, from the Prophets. And you see Jesus getting up in the synagogue also and reading from one of the prophets. He does that in the synagogue. So they had that. Then the other thing they did is they would say the prayers out of the Psalms. And they would read many of the Psalms. And then they would also have Sabbath school for the young where they would teach them about the law. And there would be discussions about that. Did the synagogues have any opinion By the time that the temple was built, it was exclusively at the temple. Yeah, if you read in the Old Testament, before there was a temple, there was a tradition of having the patriarch of the family do sacrifices locally in his home or something like that. But by, by later, it, it kind of changed and everything was centralized in the temple. So there were no sacrifices at all outside of the temple. Except for the Samaritans. The Samaritans had their own temple and things that they, they did. No, it was worship. It was worship because you prayed the Psalms and you read, the, so, and you would have a, a sermon. And if you'd have, uh, especially if you were outside of, of, uh, of Judea, you didn't have a lot of Jewish people. And so if an interesting Jewish person came along, you'd say, come and speak. You know, and they would give a sermon. And that's how Paul got in with the message of Christ in many of the synagogues. Because they would invite him to come and speak, and he would speak about Christ. Well, they didn't always welcome that. Yes. Yes, there was. There were actually lots of variations because some of them were mixed with Hellenistic kind of buildings. But you were supposed to have the scrolls of the law and they were kept, if you had walls, they would be kept in the walls. And you would pull them out of the walls and then there would be a stand uh, called the Bama. And then people would put the there and read and it would be a little bit higher. And out of there they would give a sermon. So it would be, out of that the church architecture evolved. And we'll see a picture, actually, of Jesus' synagogue. So I want to bring that. But Bama. Oh, that's a transliteration. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Thank you, Father. 
So here's an example, and we don't realize this because we kind of read it in our context, but there's something called fringes. Anybody is familiar with fringes? Okay. So, for example, in Numbers it said, speak to the children of Israel and bid them that they make fringes on the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put the fringe of the borders some blue. So why, why did they have to wear fringes? Because they had to remember the law of God. Okay? And it shall be to you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember the commandments of the Lord and do them. So it's a physical reminder of the law of God. Because that would make you special, right? The other people, the pagans, wouldn't wear fringes. But you as a Jew, as an Israelite, would wear fringes. So you'd look at that and say, oh... I'm not supposed to do what the pagans are doing. And so some pictures like that would look something like this. This is a prayer shawl with some side fringes and then on the left would be some, these are modern pictures, obviously they're not pictures from 0 BC, you know, but... Yes, I think that's true. That's a good point. So God asked the Israelites, and there was no shame in being countercultural. They ate different, they wore different, they did different because he said you're a different people, you're a holy people. But today we have a bit of discomfort with that, right? Because we kind of are part, are part of our society. Now, Christ would have had fringes because he kept the law. So anybody know where that might be hinted at? In the Gospels? In the hem of his garment, thank you. So a woman having an issue of blood 12 years had spent all her living on physicians, neither could be healed of any, and then she came from behind him and touched the border of his garment, the hem of his garment. That's what she was touching, is these fringes, because that's the law of God. That represents the law of God. And so, and she was actually healed because of her faith. Okay? So let's go back to this thing about the fence around the law. So because of their history, we talked about this, the law, they, they, many of the Jewish leaders created a law around the law. So you, you would be a sinner by, by man's standards before you would be a sinner before, by God's standards. But of course it doesn't work that way because the law is about the heart, not, you know, details that you miss out on the externalities. So, so unfortunately the law sometimes became an end in itself. Uh, among the Jews. And this should be a lesson to us as well because it's always easy in every generation to become legalistic. Whether you're pagan, Jewish, or even Christian. I was just talking with someone uh, that said, you know, she grew up in a very legalistic Christian home. So you can, you can be very legalistic if you don't understand the spirit of what you need to do. So we talked last time the 540 stripes save one, and that's because in Deuteronomy, you were told when somebody was to be uh, very uh, was to be guilty for certain things, they were to be beaten with stripes, and it had to be 40 stripes. So they gave 39 stripes. Okay. So then this leads us to the question. We so Father in his uh, email to us talked, sent us, and said we should keep 
the commandments of Christ. And Deacon mentioned about keeping the law and the commandments of Christ. So what does that mean exactly? What, so we have the te Old Testament law, and what are the commandments of Christ? Okay, so we had one answer here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Any other comments? Right, right, yes. So uh, what Patrick said is he, uh, Christ actually went through some specific Old Testament law and gave a heartfelt interpretation or I guess a more a deeper interpretation of what those meant. Uh, anybody remember what those uh, deeper interpretation was? Don't be angry without a cause, without a cause. So, so it had a deeper, deeper sense, right? So was the law of Christ different than the law of the Old Testament? Yes or no? Right, the right interpretation. Where is this law leading to? So the answer could be yes or could be no. It's no because it's based on the whole Old Testament. So what, what John said here, Christ said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Was that in the Old Testament? Yes, it was. That's an Old Testament law. And love your neighbor as yourself. Was that in the Old Testament? Yes. It's the sum of the soul. So the point is, Christ didn't come to say, well, let's wipe out that whole thing back there and we're going to start from scratch. Right? And that you often find many Protestants believe that, that, you know, we just did away with everything in the past and now we have something completely different. So it, it's not like that because we don't do something completely different. God builds on the historical things that happen. He's going over the Ten Commandments. Right. 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 Through grace. Through grace. So, comment? Right, that's very good. It actually means to show the way. It's so that's why it becomes a teaching. It's not like the law of physics, right? It's not like it's not that kind of law, uh, but it's it's a, to show the way. So that's what it means. So we think in legal terms. That's why we kind of look at the Old Testament and we think, oh, that bad law in the Old Testament, you know? But it was actually supposed to point the way to a deeper understanding of who God was. One of the commandments in the Old Testament, surprising, is God tells the people, be holy as I am holy. Who thinks that that's pretty spiritual? That's pretty deep. If you're going to be as holy as God is holy, that's, that's, about the, that's about the max you can be, right? So the Old Testament had 
you know, pretty deep stuff in it. And so the whole point of the law was to point them to something higher, but people get bogged down. They get bogged down into, well, you know, I just need to do this, but this other thing is not that important. In fact, I heard a sermon uh, given uh, up in Washington State where a priest went through you know, the law about uh, uh, praying for your enemies. And he says, well, we can ask the question, who's our enemies? Right? And, and, and it's surprising if you go through that, they could be even in your own household. Right? So then, you know, do you pray for, for the, everybody in your household? Do you forgive everybody? You know, so, so it applies very widely. Okay. So this, this is an important question for reading and understanding the gospel. And we're going to see it multiple times. And this is the key to who Christ is and to Christianity. Right. That's a very good question. So, so if you look at the law in the Old Testament, we can go through, we can spend probably the next, you know, a few weeks going through that. But I'll just give you some simple examples. So it says if you have an ox and it gores somebody and it gored people in the past and you knew it and you didn't restrain it, you're going to be punished. They might kill your ox and sell it off for meat or something. So is that applicable today? It, should, it could be, right? If you were stupid enough to let your ox run around and it, and it gored people in the past, you know, maybe they should take your ox and cut it up into pieces. They did that with dogs, right? Culpable negligence. So we can go into details and make it more elaborate, but the principle stays the same. So what we're looking at, what the New Testament points to, is that there are principles under this law. And you can't possibly encode every principle in a book. You cannot do that. Even the modern legal system can't do that. There's a, like my kids, we say, okay, don't do this, don't jump over there, don't walk over there, don't do that, don't do this other thing. Well, they'll figure something that we haven't said, and they're going to do that, right? So what, how can I teach them, you know, that don't do this, don't do that? They eventually have to understand, okay, show respect, you know, take care of things, you know, put things in their place. But how do I teach them that? So what about women and blood? What was the precepts for that? So women and blood in the Old Testament, blood was a special symbol in the Old Testament. It was a symbol of life. Not even a symbol, they actually took it to be life itself. And so when you spill the animal's blood, the, that means that, uh, that that meant something. So if you remember when Abel killed, uh, Cain killed Abel, uh, and God says his blood is crying from the ground. means his very life is crying out to me. So because it was an important ritualistic thing and it represented life, it was dealt with in a very special way. But when you get to the New Testament, Christ is, is clear increasingly, and he only gives some insights. We can actually, as he says, the church will take things a lot further than I even was able to do. So, so what Christ is pointing out is it's the inside that makes you unclean, not the outside. Something's about the inside that makes you. So we have things we do on the outside, but that's always to affect the inside. And if it doesn't affect the inside, then why are you doing all these things? It doesn't mean anything. Two things. One, the one that I always hear about is, oh, you know, the Jews couldn't wear 
Yes. We don't follow that of any variety. Right, but there was a, so you have to go back again. What was the reason that was given? So there are several laws that you, sometimes you can figure it out, sometimes you, it's hard to do that. But often with this multicolored, for example, they would mix different fabrics into this, and it wasn't multicolored, it was multi-fabric. Right. Yeah. Oh, you did, sorry. So I was thinking of Joseph. <laughs> So anyway, uh, multi-fabric because uh, the quality would not be the same and God was insisting on high quality in those days. So if you'd had a flax outfit, it would be completely flax and it would hold together, it wouldn't rip and, and some, something else. There also could have been ritualistic things and, and we don't know. They could have been ritualistic by you mixing different fabrics together that God said avoid. But we try as much as possible to understand the principles behind those things. So initially, it was as the church grew, they started to understand more and more of the principles. So the early church, for example, wouldn't eat pork, would follow the Jewish law and all of that. But Christ gave an understanding that it was the inside of the man that was the most important. So for example, the Old Testament law kept them apart from the pagans. People say it was for health reasons, but it was actually not for health reasons. There's nothing unhealthy about various things that they ate, that they didn't eat, but it kept them apart from the pagans. It made them different. And that was one reason that we also apply today. Another example is do we keep the Sabbath or do we not? Yes, it's a great question. So then you have to say, what's the purpose of the Sabbath? The purpose of the Sabbath is keep yourself holy on the Sabbath day. Do we keep ourselves holy on the Sabbath day? Well, we should. We should. As Christians, we should. What about on Sunday? Should we keep ourselves holy? We should. Monday? Yeah. Tuesday? So we actually have a seven-day Sabbath. We're supposed to keep ourselves holy seven days a week. But God gave them the Sabbath to keep themselves holy as a special day to set apart. So you see what's happening here. If you understand the purpose of, of what's going on, He asked them to stop working, but Christ pointed out the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was to point out, okay guys, you're always working and focusing on your, you know, growing crops and all of this. I'm going to make you stop one day a week and, and be holy, focus on holy things. But, but he had to make them stop and do that. Hopefully as Christians, he doesn't have to make us stop and do that. Yes. And in Acts, we read about the first council of the apostles where they got together and they decided what aspects of the body to kept. That's right. And it's interesting that almost all of it is gotten rid of, except for this idea about blood. That there's, there, there, maybe you can talk about that either later, later on in the series, because I've, I've always wondered what the context yeah. is. They're like four commandments that they say, these are the things from the law that Christians have to keep. And right. else, it's right. about the principles. Right, so the, that, that ruling was specifically for Gentiles, not for Christians in general. The Christians in Jerusalem kept on doing all the Jewish things. But, but that was specifically for, for because many of these Gentiles, they said, uh, you know, Jewish law said you couldn't eat pork. 
Well, in most Gentile areas, that's all they had is pork because it was easy to grow and pig. So what are you going to do? You can't eat. You have to eat vegetables. So, you know, and then circumcision, the Greeks hated cutting their bodies. It was a shame to cut your body for the Greeks. So if you made them cut their body and they went to work out, and, you know, men would work out in the, in the nude, right? Or they would go to the baths and people would say, oh, you cut your body. Uh, you know, you'd be, you'd be uh, for no reason, for no good reason, you might be seen as somebody unusually. A risky procedure. A risky procedure. Well, you know, converts had to do it. So they had ways of doing it. They would put wine around the wound and stuff. So <laughs> anyway, um, so that thing is very is a bit complicated, but it was for the Gentiles. So at that time, there was still a growth in understanding of what these laws meant and how did Christ intend for everything. And it took a long time. Because if you grow up in a certain way, you know, like Peter says, there, he has a vision and, and, the, and the sheet opens up and, and God says, eat all these animals. And he says, Lord, I haven't ate these animals since I was a kid. I haven't touched this thing all of my life. And so he cannot, you know, even from his conscience point of view, eat those things. But God says to him, don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. So the point wasn't about meats. The point was about, you know, don't call Gentiles unclean because some of them may be clean spiritually and I've called them clean. But he was also, there was a side message to that, that I care about the spiritual things more than I care about you not eating these animals. Could you maybe at some point in the series comment on the ones that were specifically skilled cats? Yes. These are the commandments. Yes. Even though they're part of the Jewish law, they do apply to the Gentile converts. So one of them was, was blood and food. They didn't have that for a long time, and even in the church. You can go to the early church fathers, and they'll say, you know, don't eat blood in, inside your meat, uh, or in, uh, don't eat blood at all. And that's because it came, because there was still a strong symbol everywhere in the world of understanding blood, but also in the, in the law of understanding blood as life. But eventually, you know, the church realized that this is still an external thing, right? And so even that is not really applied a lot today, as far as I know. Is it banned? Is it banned everywhere? I, th I think some people might eat it. As far as I know. Okay. All right. 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 Right, right, right. So one of the things that you'll hear people say, oh, five minutes? Thanks. So one of the things you'll hear people say is, uh, you Christians are hypocrites. 
because uh, you know you say you keep the law of God but uh, the law says don't eat shrimp and you guys eat shrimp you know so you're telling me that uh, you know various forms of sexual immorality are wrong uh, but but you don't keep the law of God so why do you care about sexual immorality and that's a false argument because the spiritual principles is what Christianity cares about. And that is a very deep subject. What are the real spiritual principles? And one of the spiritual principles is that marriage is extremely central to Christianity. And that has never changed, ever, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, marriage is a symbol of, of God and His people. Christ is going to marry his church. In the Old Testament, uh, God marries Israel. So marriage has never changed in 4,000 years. And so, and so that we understand that as a spiritual principle. So everything flows out from that. And, and so it's not a question of shrimp because shrimp has to do with something that was given for ritualistic reasons to separate them from the pagans. And it's, and it's not about external things. And we'll see a lot of external things that Christ condemns in the, in the Gospels, which we were supposed to go through today, but we're running out of time. I've not spoken too much, but one thing about the shrimp, when you say the ritualistic purposes of separating them, I think there is a principle behind all those little details, and the principle is being separate. Yes. And it's being countercultural. Yeah. Ready to be countercultural. Well, from the pagans, for sure. From the pagans. So I think I've run out of time. Are there any kind of last-minute pressing? When you gave the, your explanation of the Sabbath, it almost, to me, and I, I'm bringing this before you because I may have understood, misunderstood you, it seemed like you were almost saying there is no relevance or no importance about the Sabbath currently. No, there is, because the church still thinks of the Sabbath as important, even Saturday, the day. Right. So there are special services for the for the Saturday and so on. What I'm talking about is the all of the details that say don't work on that day. And so that is not a spiritual principle. The spiritual principle is don't work because dot dot dot. We want you to separate yourself, focus on God, but hopefully you as a Christian don't need to be told that. Look, you're, you're not thinking about God the rest of the week. We're going to you know, make sure that you think about God on Saturday. Hopefully as a Christian you don't need that. You know, like I gave the example last time, hopefully as a Christian you don't need to be told, next time you go to visit a friend, don't steal the silverware. You know, I hope that I don't have to tell you that. So it's kind of like that. You know, some things are very simple. But the Sabbath was important and is important, and they kept it for a long time. But I'll just give this very briefly. What happened is they were kicked, the Christians eventually were kicked out of the synagogue. And then they would keep the Sabbath with the synagogue keepers as far as they could. But then they would meet Saturday night and do communion. And that Saturday night transformed into Sunday morning because the, the, the many slaves were coming into the church and the slaves couldn't keep, they could only have very early in the morning off. They would work seven days a week. And so they would come very early and so very early Sunday morning is when the slaves could have communion with everybody else. So, yes. That's right. That's a good point. 
That's a good point. Yes, that's a very good point. So I have to call it quits. I didn't cover as much territory, but the discussion hopefully was fruitful. Okay.